Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. In the studio with me today, where I'm lost in their eyes, reason aside, two advertising industry goddesses, best-selling mad women who will help us try to make sense of a world where agency budgets are being slashed, magazine and TV brands are fading, while Facebook is worth $300 billion? So yes, 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 stay with us. Local broadcast to full disclosure made possible by Elwood Thompson's, aspiring to feed the heart and soul of our community through a strong commitment to local and organic food. Elwood Thompson's, located in Richmond's Carytown. Linda Kaplan-Thaler, Robin Koval, authors of the national best-selling book Grit to Great and Madison Avenue Veterans, thank you so much for joining us today. Our pleasure. Pleasure to be here. You know, um, apropos of of nothing and everything, something about you right here beside me touches the touched part of me like I can't believe. You know, just is that too schlocky for you? No, it's not too schlocky, but it does remind me of of a campaign Robin and I did with that woman in the shower for herbal essences. Yes, who says, "Robin, help me out here." Yes, yes, yes. 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 She was having way too much fun with that shampoo, but we took it from a. Brand that was about to go off the shelves to the second leading hair care in the country, and women are now having organic experiences in 75 countries around the world, except in China. Instead of going, ah, 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 they go, ha, 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 ha. I'll have what she's having later, okay? <laughs> no, let's mix metaphors there. I do want to get to that story. You guys are advertising industry uh, veterans. Uh, you've, you've, um, been around the block several times, and in your new book, Grit to Great, there's this great passage. Uh, I would like to read it at the very outset to get us started. In 1997, Linda, you were the chief creative officer of a now-defunct New York ad agency and had been working on the Clairol business when another client asked her to resign because Clairol felt it was in direct conflict with one of their hair care brands. With the backing of Clairol's then-CEO, Linda decided to resign as well and open a small boutique agency out of her home with Clairol as her first client. Knowing Linda was first and foremost a creative copywriter, the CEO suggested she meet with Robin Koval, who was an executive vice president and group account director at a rival agency. Robin, as it turns out, had been looking to move to another agency. Over a shared brand muffin, Robin and Linda agreed to join forces. And so the Kaplan-Thaler group was born with six employees on the 700-square-foot third floor of the brownstone where Linda and her family lived in the Chelsea section of Manhattan with Clairol's Herbal Essences as their first account. Fast forward for me, Linda and Robin. In a matter of a couple of years, you had how many accounts and what were your billings? Well, within the first year, we'd gone from one account, which was Clairol Herbal Essences, uh, to at the end of that first year, we had over $80 million in business. Uh, We had to move. So we were in this little tiny 700-square-foot apartment. There were not enough chairs. If you got up during the day and you went to the bathroom or something, you came back and you literally didn't have a chair. We had to move. When I came back, there was no chair. And I said, that's it. Those are my minimum job requirements. I'm leaving. I'm going to get a margarita. And then we decided to move. Um, And so within... A year, we'd moved to another office. We were about 20 people, and ultimately, the agency was acquired and ended up being Publicis Kaplan-Thaler. We had over 700 people. Now it's uh, Publicis New York, 800 people uh, from this little tiny brownstone. 
it's a multinational ad brand right now. Absolutely. I mean, so many wonderful pieces of business that we handle, like Wendy's and Citibank and Procter and & Gamble and, and of course, that, that, uh, that little-known insurance company with that quacking duck. Aflac! Aflac! <laughs> well, I want to know what was in that brand muffin that you guys shared. What happened in that conversation? We really love to unpack these moments where you have the entrepreneur's dilemma and the leap of faith, which is something you really hit head-on with so many wonderful examples in this book, Why Grit Matters, which as I said at the top of the show, is already a national bestseller. It's a great read, by the way. Very easy to read, very quick. Um, it is your third bestseller as a as a tandem, right? Actually, it's our fourth. Oh, my gosh. Fourth. But, you know, um, I mean, the brand muffin was a great moment because, you know, one of the things we say about, about GRID, I mean, it's an acronym, right? It stands for Guts, Resilience, initiative and tenacity. And I remember meeting Linda. We had breakfast. I didn't actually know Linda. We were introduced by this mutual client, Steve Sadoff, who at the time was the CEO of Clairol. Um, I knew of her because we were kind of rivals. And I met her at this place, this muffin place. I remember we had this gigantic brand muffin. I got there early. I bought the brand muffin and cups of coffee for both of us. And I was like too cheap to buy two brand muffins because they seemed like they were so big. We'd never finish both. So I cut it surgically in half and I placed it, you know, half on her plate and half on mine and basically said, you know, hi, I'm Robin Koval. I bought this brand muffin. I didn't think we'd finish both, but if you don't want it, I'll take it home with me. And- wait, 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 time out. <laughs> I'm thinking, here I am thinking before I book you that you are three Martini Madison Avenue executives. You're eating at Michael's, the Ritz, the Four Seasons. You. You split a brand muffin. We split a brand muffin. But, you know, it said everything about us that we, you know, we could collaborate. We were both a little frugal, which when you're starting a business, you definitely want. Um, And we knew everything uh, that we needed to know about each other in that moment. But taking that step to start this little agency in a third floor walk up brownstone when, you know, each of us were coming from real jobs. I was an executive vice president in an agency. I had a nice corner office. People said I was absolutely nuts to do this. And it was this big gutsy moment to say, I don't know exactly why I want to do this, but I met this woman and I had a brand muffin with her. And there's something about it that I just know I don't know how, but I just know we're going to be successful. And She had you at what? She had me when she told me she was the woman who had written the Toys R Us jingle. I don't want to grow up. Those little kids are grandparents now, by the way. Those kids who were in that commercial. And uh, Toys R Us is nearly bankrupt, but it's a good thing you got out. Well, I got out when I did, no. (laughs) No, So really, really more. Tell me more about that moment. It's like, really, you had to kind of make a blood pact and say, you know what? We're doing this. Is there something liberating about knowing you have nothing to lose at this point? If you'd already made your mind, Robin, to leave the fast track where you were and do something risky and entrepreneurial... um, and, and you get at this theme in the book that when there isn't that safety net, it's almost emboldening, liberating. Well, you know, I thought, what's the worst that will happen, right? Uh, I'll take this leap. It sounded like it was going to be fun. I had met Linda. I loved her. I trusted Steve. And, you know, you have to sort of force yourself off the ledge sometimes. You know, when we were writing this book— Um, we wanted to interview someone who actually does scary things for a living because I think that that issue of fear is what holds us back all the time and we're afraid that we're going to fail. 
Uh, but you have to fail if you want to go forward. And so we interviewed Nick Walenda. You know, Nick is the the, the tight the wire guy, artist, right? right. Um, and we interviewed him about how do you get over your fear. And he was uh, he was practicing at the time to do that walk over the Grand Canyon. Uh, you know, 1,200 yeah, feet up geez. in the air, 1,500 feet across the canyon. And what he said, and it's like it really just sort of light bulb moment. He said, well, you know, I grew up knowing that fear is a part of life. You shouldn't try to avoid it. What you have to do is respect it. And the way you get over your fear and the way you learn to control it is you become absolutely maniacal about preparing for it. Didn't he also witness his father fall off of a tightrope? Well, there have—I mean, there have been deaths, yeah, in the Wolanda family. I mean, that's part of it. Yeah, and he, but he, but he taught us such valuable lessons, which we put in the book uh, about the idea of not just preparing but over-preparing for whatever you do, and that's something that's very important because what what fear is telling you is that you need to push a little harder. And uh, Michael Bloomberg, our esteemed ex-mayor of New York, is famous for saying, I'll never be the smartest person in the room, but I outwork everybody. And that has been the secret to our success. You know, we looked at how did our agency, within two years, we were one of the fastest growing agencies in the United States. Yes, we were bright, but we were not geniuses. We were talented, but we were not virtuoso prodigies. And we started to look at it and say, our, when we would win businesses, and of course we do a postmortem, and whether we won or lost, and we were winning so many, and the clients kept saying, you know, your work was great, the thinking was great, but you just worked harder than everybody else, so we think you're going to work harder on our business. And then we started doing our homework and doing some research on other people, uber successful people, and realized they had very, very ordinary beginnings. They were not extraordinary anyway. Colin Powell was a C-minus student all through college till he discovered the ROTC. Steven Spielberg was rejected three times from film school. Michael Jordan, I don't know how many people, how many listeners out there know this, but he couldn't even get accepted to his high school varsity basketball team. You know, and, and Alibaba, you know, founder by Jack Ma, when he graduated college, he couldn't even get a job at KFC as a server. Which, by the way, if you've ever been to Shanghai or Beijing, there's a KFC on every single corner. So this was the lowest well, bar Now he's a national world. legend. But he's a hero. The, Alibaba is one of the largest companies. Yeah, right. The, the point, Amazon the of China. Yeah. The point is none of these people have what you would call the it factor. Not They didn't have Mensa IQs. They weren't incredibly talented or anything. What they had is what we call the grit factor. And as Robin talked about it, we define grit as guts, resilience, initiative, and tenacity. And the newest research and this groundbreaking neuroscience that's coming out, the newest research has revealed that of people who are born prodigies, only 2% of them actually go on to accomplish anything. It's inversely proportionate. You know, there's a, a, a great piece of research that came out the other day just on that issue, I mean, related to it. So The Economist did this whole uh, piece of research ranking colleges and the relative value of a college education in terms of how much money you make. And, you know, everybody thinks that if you go to an Ivy League school, somehow you're special and, you know, because you're smart and you're going to be more successful. Here's what the study showed. I, 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 it's amazing. In the top 10 schools, one Ivy League school. 
The rest are, uh, many of them are ones you've never heard of. So this whole notion that, you know, how successful you're going to be is predicted by where you went to school or your IQ or how innately talented you are. You know, you can throw a ball, you can sing a song, or you're rich or pretty or popular, or any of those things. Actually not true. The thing that is most predictive of how well you're going to do in life, how much you're going to be able to achieve, are these character traits of guts, resilience, initiative, tenacity, your grit. That's how you predict and actually how you achieve success. I want to know in the wake of what we called the Great Recession back then, the huge economic calamity emanating out of 2008 and 2009, a record number of 20-somethings living with their parents, no job availability. There's really no shame in being unemployed. I mean, when I graduated from college, you had to duck to not get a job on Wall Street. It was a bull market. Uh, the conditions were tight. You could get poached out of your first job very easily. It's a complete 180-degree turnaround from that. And I know that you've gotten lots of interest from parents of millennials right now and 20-somethings and what they call a kind of a lost, um, directionless generation. Um, to what extent has it underscored the importance of these GRIT traits in an environment where really the, your pedigree doesn't matter as much? Well, you know, we've not done a great favor to our kids, mm -hmm. the millennial generation, um, in terms of the whole helicopter parenting uh, self-esteem movement, everybody gets a trophy, we're all special. Uh, you know, kids have to understand that we're not all special, that we do have to compete, that uh, mommy and daddy are not going to come in and, you know, tell your boss that, uh, you know, gee, you really should promote Johnny. He's doing a wonderful job. I mean, life doesn't work that way. You know, I always said in advertising, right, there are no silver medals in advertising. You get the account or you, you don't. You get it or you don't. And so we have to uh, recognize that we raised a generation of kids who, unfortunately, weren't allowed to play musical chairs because, oh, my God, everybody loses except for one person. <laughs> that is nuts. The world doesn't work that way. You guys are Ashkenazic tiger mothers. <laughs> in a way, yes. But it's, but it's really true. I mean, I think one of the things that we need to do in terms of a little tough love is, you know, people entering the workforce say, you know, here's the newsflash, guys. You're not that special. And if you think you're smart, there's probably a thousand other people smarter than you. What's going to get you promoted, what's going to get you ahead is going to be your resilience, your perseverance, your stamina. And you know what? I never look at anybody's resume to see what college they went to. I couldn't care what their GPA is or the SAT scores. When you look at people who are Pulitzer Prize winners or Nobel Prize laureates, you think they have these gargantuan IQs? They don't. They're moderately bright. They didn't have great SAT scores. This is a real eye-opener for people. Grit is humanity's great equalizer. The fact is that you can learn it and attain it at any age. And what we try to do in our book is give you grit builders, is show you how you can get from here to there. And it's doable for everybody. You got raves from Ariana Huffington, who uh, I quote says, uh, Grit is an insightful guide to achieving success in work and life, filled with real-life stories, tools, and techniques that can help us all live with more passion, perseverance, and resilience. Oh, thank you, Ariana. That Do you was like lovely. it? Thank you. you and please read the Huffington Post, which I sold. Oh, uh, no. Uh, above, above that review is, is the bestseller, the enormous, gargantuan bestseller, James Patterson, who's a former CEO of J. Walter Thompson. Um, I, I'm, I'm blown away by his story, the fact that it was not pre 
preordained at all that he would be this prolific no, bestseller. I worked for him for over 17 years at uh, J. Walter Thompson, the one of the oldest ad agencies in America. And here was a man who, he was my immediate boss, my creative director, and he got up at 4 o'clock every morning. This is a guy who never espoused having some great fantasy of becoming a writer. He just did it. You know, he woke up every morning, worked for four hours, and then at 9 o'clock would come in and put a full day's work in. And he he had so many failed attempts at books, at novellas, and screenplays. He was no overnight success. We were on a flight going to uh, Kodak. We were working on a campaign, you probably remember some of you, called Kodak Moments. And he turns to me and he says, well, after 20 years, I finally figured out how to write a bestseller. This is 20 years of waking up at 4 o'clock every morning and writing for hours and hours. And it was the first Alex Cross book, Along Came a Spider. And today, James Patterson is the number one selling author in the entire world. All because, as we say, you know, he, he didn't have a dream. He ditched the dream. He just lived the reality. Um, as Estee Lauder says, she's famous for, you know, her quote, I never once dreamed of success. I just worked for it. And I never promised you a rose garden, Linda. But, you know, <laughs> <laughs> having said that, uh, Linda Kaplan-Thaler, Robin Koval, uh, advertising veteran goddesses. I do want to get into the industry, which right now is in this period of huge tumult. And, and you're somewhat detached from uh, the big ad agency life right now. Robin, you've gone off to uh, 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 run Truth, the huge uh, youth anti-smoking initiative. Yeah. Linda, you're still connected to your agency, but you have more of an emeritus role right now. You're kind of hands off from the, you know, getting I'm your... chairman. So yeah, I'm involved in, in not as much day to day as before. But surely Correct. you're spectating what's going on in all of media. As, as you know, my magazine was sold for a dollar. There was a, in, in 1997, when you guys um, struck out on your own, there was a thud factor to magazine. Magazines. I mean, there were triple issues of Vanity Fair and Fortune, and advertising was really flush. Now, in 2015, we're dealing with the likes of Time Warner and Disney coming out and saying that, for example, in in TV, which was king and uh, whose whose staying power was indefatigable, suddenly there's cord cutting. Suddenly, we're encountered by the Netflix paradigm, where if you you know you you do lecture at NYU, where you talk to twenty somethings, they like to Netflix and chill. They they go. Uh, they they watch Hulu. This is a huge predicament for ad agencies, and it's a huge predicament for the media companies if they don't know how to pay for content like this. Well, you know, there's a ton of stuff going on. So there's, you know, all the disaggregation that's happening on the agency side, right? Everybody is a content creator. So, you know, when we started our agency, there were clients, and they came to agencies, and, you know, it was sort of a closed system, and you bought media from media companies. And it was a nice little triangle. But now, media companies are content creators for advertisers. Um, I mean, the New York Times has its own ad studio. Right. You know, media agencies have creative departments. Creative agencies are doing, you know, all sorts of other work. So it's a very, very confusing landscape. The agency model is dead for a lot of clients, right? You read every single day how clients are no longer creating AOR relationships. Uh, what is an and, AOR relationship? Uh, an agency of record. Sorry about that. So, you know, it used to be you hired an agency and that was your agency, or maybe you had several agencies. So instead agencies. the client is sleeping around as being promiscuous There's, with several different... Yeah, you know, I mean, you can get an idea from anybody. You can buy an idea from... Uh, from uh, a media company. You can buy an idea from YouTube and have Maker Studio make it. You can get it anywhere. And so, 
you know, what's happened, I, in some ways it's a good thing. It's a good thing for creativity. People who have ideas can find lots of places and outlets for their ideas. You don't have to get it, you know, from an agency. But in the agency world, that's really, really a problem now, I think. And on the media side, you're right, is, I mean, I'm a client now, right? We, you know, we target advertising to young people. Our target are 15 to 21-year-olds, so they're the most media promiscuous people anywhere. I mean, basically, if there's a screen, um, they're watching it. Is just figuring out where these kids are is a tremendous problem, and it's and it's costly because you can't go to one or two places. You have to go to a dozen places. Uh, isn't it an admission of, of, of ads, for example, on YouTube not working or not being all that desirable in that you open up the YouTube screen and it says skip in five seconds or in 15 seconds? If at the outset you're saying, here, we know you kind of want to skip it, isn't that kind of saying that uh, really it's capitulating at the very outset? You know what, though? This is we just did this research. We found that we can reach the most kids still on TV, but our best performing channel is YouTube. We're putting more money there. How do you how do you measure return on investment on YouTube? For example, is there a code or people click through the click through rates you see are? Well, we look for yeah for engagement measures and how much they're viewing, um, and then ultimately, you know, for us, we measure that in so. Are they more or less likely to, you know, want to smoke a cigarette? So, you know, because we're talking about not smoking. Mm. I think what's also so important now is the earned media. It's not even the media that you're buying, but it's the media you're earning by creating conversations where people become your ambassadors to talk about your brand. Yeah. And, you know, we did this, I know, with, with Dawn. Uh, the Proctor, dishwashing liquid. The dishwashing liquid, yeah. where several years ago we said, you know, I don't think people are just buying brands. They're actually buying into what that brand represents because we're in a world now where people are connected, quote unquote, to lots of friends on Facebook, but very disconnected in a human person to person kind of way. So brands can fulfill that role by making you feel good about who you are. And we discovered that during the Exxon Valdez, you know, the oil slick that was created that was killing all of this wildlife, that actually the veterinarians were asking for Dawn because Dawn was efficacious in cutting grease, something we had been talking about for years, you know, in the sink with dishes. I just remember that very vividly. And we said, you know what, you need to promote this and you need to, you know, and let people know what you're doing. And it's been hugely successful where people feel now that when they buy a bottle of Dawn, which has the wildlife picture on it, they are helping to save wildlife. And I can't tell this enough to our clients. It's not about the ad that's going to go on TV necessarily. It's what do you represent? What kind of role do you play in society beyond being a commodity of some sort? And we find that this is extremely profitable when it's done right. When having brand ambassadors out there doing the marketing for you. Absolutely. Uh, to what extent do you put stock in social media? Where people are opting in, for example, on your Twitter handle. Let's talk about truth. You know, the hashtag is out there. Um, uh, uh, you have to engage people on LinkedIn, on Facebook. There have to be viral campaigns where, uh, yeah, I remember, for example, Robin, we were talking about this. John Oliver does that Philip Morris International spiel over the weekend, and suddenly it's by far the most shared thing on Facebook Monday morning. And that's a lot to ask for people to sit through a 17 minute diatribe. But it's not like HBO Brass was out there blanketing the map. People were doing it for them. 
you know, we depend a lot on social um, because we believe that, you know, we're we're looking to create social change, right? We want kids to not smoke. We want kids to advocate to their peers to not smoke. What we realized is that where we are right now, right, 92% of kids don't smoke, right? Only 8% of kids still smoke. So how are we going to get to that 8%? That's a really small group. Um, what we think is you use the peer group, right? Use the the leverage of all those kids. And now they have incredible power that they never would have had before, right? You know, when I was growing up, if you had 100 friends, you were the most popular kid in school. Today, if you have 100 friends, you're a loser, right? Because kids have thousands of friends. So, you know, our effort is is very targeted towards social because we believe if we can get kids to kind of really believe they can be the generation that will end smoking because they can be. I mean, the numbers really work out that at some point it just collapses on itself that and they can do that themselves. And what we want to do is empower them. So we we're we're very big on social. We I'm, I was talking about YouTube before. Um, we do a lot of Vine stuff. We're on Snapchat. and You know, I mean, every place where kids are, that's where they spend their lives. When you left the agency life and you were recruited, uh, did you have to suddenly bone up on all these different channels? I mean, to keep up with Vine and Snapchat and Instagram, it's not just a Facebook tour. They call it broadly this, the statusphere. Uh, but now, you know, for example, as a journalist, if I have a byline or show out, I have to go out and do my own hustle, right? It has to be on Twitter, it has to be on Facebook, it has to be on a LinkedIn Pulse channel, ideally with LinkedIn influencers blasting it out for me. It's kind of it's kind of crazy out there, and I wonder what the ROI is. Well, it is it's exhausting, right? <laughs> Every time I think I'm like, okay, I got the lineup straight, something new happens, and kids, of course, are going to discover it first. Um, you know, we we sort of wait for kids to discover it and figure out what they're going to do with it. But like Snapchat's a great example, right? Everybody thought Snapchat was going to be about sending naked pictures of yourself to your friends, or that's not how kids use it. They use it as sort of just like instant communication, and it's more private than you know putting something on Facebook. So you kind of have to learn how kids are going to use it, and then we go there. Uh, but yeah, it's pretty it's pretty crazy, and it is expensive, right? We used to be able to you'd go shoot a commercial. And it was done. Thank you very much. And you put it on the air and watch what happened. Now, I mean, we have social media people at uh, at Truth who, I mean, are literally working 24-7 to seed the conversation, answer the conversation, move the conversation along, and get, you know, get people to engage. Hmm. Linda, where were you when you first tried the DVR, whether it was TiVo or a Time Warner cable skipping yeah, I guess experience. it was. I was skipping the ad experience. Yes, and, and, it's and, interesting. and what was your epiphany when that happened? I remember there was a Michael Lewis yeah. cover story in New York Times Magazine in in August of two thousand, I believe, which showed a TV crashing on a uh, New York City sidewalk, and it's kind of saying the end of TV. Well, you know, it's interesting, and it's also interesting when you fast forward commercials that you've created, <laughs> <laughs> which happens all the time, you know. Uh, but interestingly enough. One of the, you know, we created the Aflac duck campaign. And one of the interesting things that came out of the research was that the duck was so popular. We like to say that uh, the Aflac campaign was so successful that when ducks see other ducks, they immediately think of supplemental insurance. So you know you've really, mm. <laughs> you've really reached it. And one of the things that came out of the research was that at the Aflac commercials were one of the few that people actually stopped, even if they had DVR'd a program, to actually watch the friggin' commercial. And this gets back to the notion of are we losing 
this gift or this art form of creating branding that is so powerful and so strong that no matter what medium you're looking at, you are going to stop and pay attention. And I think a lot gets lost in this endless amount of data that we have that is not being interpreted in an insightful and creative way. You know, I talk about sometimes, you know, this, this combination of the right brain and left brain. You know, where is that middle brain? Where's that middle brain going? And we need to do a better job in our industry to be able to make sense of the data in a way that is truly disruptive. Because what's happening now is you get a lot of, okay, here's this information, here's this information, and then I'm going to parrot it back. But that doesn't that isn't the way it works in advertising. It's not what you say. It's the way that you are trying to disrupt the conversation that somebody's listening to. We did something for Doctors of the World about a year or so ago during the Ebola crisis, and they're an offshoot of um, Doctors Without Borders, and they needed you know, to gain more recognition and obviously needed donations. And right about that time, all this information was coming in, and one of the pieces of information that was in the news was that people were buying these ridiculous hazmat suits for Halloween you know, making fun of the whole crisis. And everybody wanted to stay as far away as possible from all this negative media and these phony hazmat suits and doctors of the world. So a team comes to us and goes, what if we took those two pieces of information and put them together? And what if we actually said on Halloween when you're wearing that stupid costume, take a picture of it, show it to your friends, and now ask them to buy the real thing and go to a website that we created and say, okay, you're wearing the phony mask for $5, you can buy the real one, and $10. And what happened in terms of when we talked about earned media is that the New York Times, USA Today, the Wall Street Journal, see, everybody gave us, we got full color page ads for free, piece on CNN, op-eds in USA Today, $30 million of free media because of an idea that was so disruptive and so powerful. But the client is ultimately saying to you, don't give me the impression numbers and, you know, whatever you back of the envelope for three media and what a full page ad and the CNN appearance is worth. But I want to see how much ends up in the coffers after two weeks. That's is that, right. is that and how what, it's measured? And what happened, I mean, it actually won a, a lion at Cannes, which is sort of like winning the Oscar for advertising. The awareness shot through in, in a way that they'd never seen before. Donations like quadrupled overnight. It was unbelievable. And we didn't spend a penny. We didn't spend a penny. And so it reminds me of the Ice Bucket Challenge, which was the huge viral winner, which, which sounded absurd on its face, but was an enormous, enormous boon for ALS. Exactly. And so it doesn't make sense. And those are the things that are most disruptive, the things that don't seem to make sense, except that when you actually look back, you can find the thread that connects it. Hmm. The world we're living in now is where I mentioned uh, beforehand, uh, Facebook, as of yesterday, crossed the $300 billion market cap threshold. This company is not that old. Uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg founded it at Harvard, dropped out. It's now worth as much as Disney, Fox, and Time Warner combined. Uh, that is a tremendous sea shift, and and you know not to to mention Google, which itself is worth uh, five hundred billion dollars. There's been a huge phenomenon over the last ten years. Certainly, if you look at magazines, uh, Time Inc., Condé Nast, all the the disruption and destruction that's going on. It's less of a creative destruction than it is just usurping the ads away, taking ad money away from uh, vestigial players to new media players. But I'm not convinced that a Facebook 
throws off all that much cash. And I'm not convinced as an active user of a Facebook that there's that much efficacy in what they do. Well, you know, I just uh, was looking at some information. I mean, I think you're right that um, when you look at, you know, we look at a lot of how young people are using media. So they still say that their favorite media and where they spend the most time is television. And they use social media, but the level of engagement is is lower. So for certainly for advertisers, um, it's you can't. But television is what HBO Go and Netflix count as television. Yeah, well, these are not ad driven things. These are, you know, pay per go. You know, kids are watching, well, people are watching television across many, many different platforms. Um, Yeah, the -the over-the-top platforms are becoming really important. Um, But, you know, we still see lots of kids watching MTV, Adult Swim, uh, you know, all the Nickelodeon stuff. I mean, kids go where the content is. And for them, they're not, you know, advertisers slice and dice it by where it's it's running and what kind of a platform it is and it's advertising supported or not advertising supported. And by the way, you know, there's lots of ways to be on these non-advertising channels through content creation, right? Isn't that like what Vice is doing mm. now? Hugely popular. So how do you embed content in places? You talked about John Oliver before. I mean, if you're trying to get a message out there about, you know, the tobacco companies are manipulating you, uh, uh, you know, look what they're doing out in, out in the world in terms of convincing people in third world countries to smoke and, you know, getting people to feel a certain way. You don't need an ad to do that now. You can do that with content as well. So I think for advertisers, it's a brave new world. There's lots of different ways to get messages out there. You just have to be really creative now. It's not going to be necessarily just doing a commercial, sticking it, you know, on ABC and, and thinking your job is done. Mm. There was this provocative Wall Street Journal headline that I sent to you uh, this week. It said, hey, ads, people are just not that into you. Mm. Online advertising needs more than just better ads. There's all this hand-wringing and consternation now about the new ad blocking capability that's coming out, uh, that Apple and its iPhones, we all have iPhones here, uh, in the new Safari system can just you know, completely take these annoying ads out of the experience. And that pre- presents a quandary for all these ad-driven media companies that if you we, we don't have this ability, we cannot possibly afford to pay for bylines, pay for video producers, for copywriters. Um, why don't we just throw up our hands and, and, and say, yeah, sure, advertising is dead and the reckoning is here and you need to finally pay for your content. Well, that may be where things are going, you know, but I think when it comes down to it, are people going to really want to pay to watch Adult Swim 24 hours a day? They're paying for HBO Go. They're paying for Netflix. They are. I mean, you know, Netflix and chill is now euphemism among 20-somethings. You know what that means. It means let's go back and hook up. Um, it, I, I kid you not. I mean, the kids say the I've, darndest I've heard, things. I've heard that. I've I heard presented that to a class here at the media school. I tried to break the ice by saying, hey, so what do you guys <laughs> watch on TV? And they all look at me like I'm a moron. Like, we don't have TVs. You think I'm going to pay for a, a cable package, man? No, it's it's an a la carte world. Yes. Uh, and, and that kind of media buying promiscuity. And you've seen what's transpired over 10 years. Imagine it 10 years hence. You know, I think the the demise of the advertising industry has been predicted many, many times, right? So when, you know, the the uh, the VCR came out, you know, 
ages ago. That was going to be the end of advertising. When, you know, DVRs came out, that was going to be the end of advertising. I don't think... Yeah, but Robin, everything is on demand on the internet. I could find any commercial ever made on YouTube, any creative product either of you have ever done. I don't have to pull up a Betamax tape or anything like that. It's really at my fingertips. Yeah, well, but but I think the point is, is that, and and you see this in, in surveys, young people don't hate advertising, they hate bad advertising. And so every time there's a big disruption in how content gets distributed, there's also a little bit of a creative revolution as well. So if you want people to watch your stuff right now, it's got to be really good. We just did a whole effort um, on truth called Left Swipe That, um, basically saying, you know, if you want to get a hookup on Tinder, don't put a smoking picture on your profile because <laughs> it's likely to get left swiped, which is really funny and really went to the heart of what do kids care about, hooking up. Um, what did we do? We put all these Vine stars in it and YouTube stars and, you know, music people. And we got kids to watch it because we gave them something that was interesting. And we put it on YouTube and we put it on Spotify and places where kids were, you know, aggregating. Um, yeah, you're not going to get young people um, in the future to watch your dumb commercial. I mean, unless you really, really make it valuable to them. I think we're also going to start a... Uh modeling after the way they do it in Europe, particularly in France and in England, where you sort of are required to have a certain percentage of entertainment in your advertising. You know, people always ask, why are the commercials in Europe like so much funnier? Because they really have to be. Wait, that's state mandated? It's not state mandated. It must be more humorous than this. There, there the is, Germans are really good at that there one. Is, <laughs> there is in some countries, actually, it is mandated. And I'm, I can't even tell you which ones they are. But I know I remember us hearing about, well, you can't put that on because it won't be accepted by people at all. And in the United States, we're so focused on, you know, get the facts, get the statistics down, you know, sell, 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 sell. And I think we're really moving away from that because we know that people don't have to pay attention to anything that you do. And I do agree with Robin. I think it's going to eventually making, and I'm not even going to say our ads, but the messaging is going to become more and more entertaining and appealing to people because they're always going to have this opportunity to turn you off at any point. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to advertising mad women industry guru goddesses, Linda Kaplan-Thaler and Robin Koval. They have a national bestseller out. It's called Grit to Great. You must read it. It takes hardly no time at all, and uh, it will change the way you think about your career path and your potential. I really want to get to a candid question that I have in terms of uh, and, – and you're enough removed from the big agency life to answer this with candor and to not offend anybody – how much of that business is kind of mutual assured BS? Like you as the the ad agency saying, you know what, this is really making an impact. This is really doing things. And you as the 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 the, the marketing vice president at the company just saying, look, just cover my ass in terms of making it look like we're doing something and we'll have a great relationship together for four or five years. There'll be many martini lunches. And in the process, there is a lot of heat and friction, but not light. No real value is added. Again, I'm asking this in terms of is advertising really overrated, especially with everything else that has happened technologically and structurally? Well, I mean, I'm just going to say- And that's not a loaded question. Yeah, yeah. look, I mean, I think in any industry, right, there's the part that's really effective, and then there's the part where, you know, time gets wasted, nobody's 100% efficient. But 
I don't know. I mean, I'll talk about what we're doing on truth, but even in my past life with clients, I mean, these days, everything gets measured, right? You can't just go out for a three martini lunch, do some, you know, have some funny advertising and then not care if it works or not. I mean, everything is getting measured. There's data on everything. When we worked on Wendy's um, together, I mean, I remember like every day they're counting how many hamburgers they're selling. So if... If your advertising's not producing results, I mean, you're going to get fired. Yeah, but everything is, again, everything was disrupted in the wake of 2008, 2009. You talk about the agency model. I talk about the law firm partnership model. You have people re-examining, why are we paying $300 an hour when they're giving us associates? Damn it, I want a partner if I'm doing that. Or what's the payoff for that? Everything was scrutinized because there was no pricing power to pass down. It was the worst economic calamity of our lifetimes. And certainly advertising was slashed in that way. Well, I must say, so it behooves us that we have to work, which is one of the reasons we wrote the book. You have less people to do more work faster than ever. And I totally agree with Robin. I mean, you cannot put any messaging out there that isn't going to get tested immediately. And if it doesn't work, you know, it's I've I've you know been been blessed to work on a few presidential political campaigns. And the model there is if it doesn't work overnight. You're onto something else. Well, it's that way in the ad business now. Everything is so immediate because it can be so immediate because you're, the data is coming in and the research is coming in. We have a thing called Newsroom at the agency, which is constantly monitoring um, you know, what's happening on Hootsuite and, and, and what people are saying about your brand and what people are saying about what's going on in the world. And we're tuning in and we're listening to them and we're feeding back to them. It's so immediate. But it comes back to the same thing that I was talking about earlier. If your brand does not have a a narrative that is really clear, then it's going to disintegrate with all the various mediums. I always liken it to a beautiful mirror. If you smash a beautiful mirror on the floor, you should be able to pick up one shard of glass, no matter how small it is, and see your entire reflection in it. And that's what you need to do with branding today. You have to more than ever create a brand that is so powerful that you could be looking at it on your, you, you know, on, on your Apple Watch and be able to understand what that brand means and how it affects you, not just in, in a rational kind of way, but in an emotional kind of way, because people are buying into brands in an emotional kind of way. I want to know what's going to happen to uh, the remaining legacy print outlets that are there. Um, that have been holding on for dear life. Many have been sold to billionaires. Uh, the Wall Street Journal. Are, there are no longer, you know, full-page department store ads the way they used to be. Uh, General Motors and the Big Three cut back after 2008. Magazines have experienced a mass extinction. I mean, it's it's you know, you you talk to your pals at at Condé Nast, which has Vanity Fair, and you talk to Hearst and Cosmo and all that, and it's just not what it used to be. Um, what do, what do you think happens to the content makers, the media makers out there? Well, you know, content has to find a place to live, right? There's always, I think there's more content creators now, there's more makers now than there ever were before, but it's migrating to different places. So, you know, some legacy print publications have been really smart about that. The New York Times has, you know, done done a great job there. Others have um, new content 
uh, platforms have come out. We were talking about Vice before, which is, you Yeah, know, talk to me about that. The New York Times has a brand studio now, which, for example, Orange is the New Black comes out. It's a Netflix property. They engage the brand studio with some journalists at the New York Times. And there's a Chinese wall internally to do a really polished New York Times video series on women in prison, uh, which which runs parallel buzz to the debut of the new season. And that's, that's just smart. But it is really blurring, um, you know, uh, Chinese walls that used to exist that would separate marketing from editorial. Are you concerned about that? And obviously, the buzz feeds of the world and Vice. I mean, they're they're almost like ad ad studios first and journalistic operations second. Well, I think you know stories are always going to get out there. Um, you know, we live in a world where you can you know get your news on on Twitter too. Um, I think there's always going to be a need for responsible journalism, right? People want to know the facts and the truth. It's just you're going to get it in a lot of different ways. And it isn't going to be uh, served up to you on a silver platter with a little bow around it that says, you know, this is what the New York Times believes, so it's what you should believe. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's, you know, all about democratizing news. I happen to think that it's democratizing in a, in, a, in a really grand scale. The ability now is where you used to have, you know, a, a, a few brands or a few different media channels. Now it's wide open and it's the Wild West. And I think it's very exciting for entrepreneurs out there because everybody has the opportunity to create an audience. Everybody has the opportunity to sell, you know, and, and it's made it a much, in a way, a much even playing ground for people who are out there, you know, some 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 one person who has some one little factory has this ability now to reach millions of people around the world in a way that they never could do that before. And mm-hmm. I think that part of it is fantastic. Are there specific examples of ad uh, buying and spend resourcefulness that blow you away? We spoke about the ice bucket challenge, where, again, it goes back to the example of you in 1997. You start with something very small, but you uh, you echo chamber yourself in a way that it looks mega. And suddenly there's a Today Show's picking it up. It's all over YouTube. It's all over Facebook. Uh, give me some examples of people who've really pulled that off in the smartphone era. I mean, do they come to mind? The case studies that we're going to be teaching in business school. I mean, look, Sheryl Sandberg, uh, the chief operating officer of Facebook, comes out and says, um, the number one complaint we get from consumers is, why aren't the ads better? I think the ads will get better when uh, many of our clients, I don't mean my clients particularly, when many clients come to the realization that you know, the tree may be falling in the forest, but nobody's really there to hear it. And that's when it kind of dawns on you that, oh, wow, I've created something, but no, I don't think anybody's seeing it. And that's coming out of research. And I think what we are beginning to see now are ads that are becoming more creative because they know that, you know, you have every opportunity not to watch something. <laughs> you have every opportunity not to pay attention. It's also bit for, for brands and companies willing to let go of that conversation. You know, always brands have wanted to be in control. I want to say X, Y, Z about my brand. I'm going to talk to you and tell you this. Well, it doesn't happen that way anymore. Now we're having a conversation with our consumers, and that conversation may not be everything that you want to hear. It may be a little off-message at time. Sometimes it may be something where you go, wait a second, that person has a point of view. I haven't looked at it that way. We saw this, by the way, in one of our brands where we found out we did something as a fun joke to put it out there for April Fool's Day. 
And people came back and said, you know, that's not a bad idea. You should be thinking about doing that for real time. And I, unfortunately, I can't say what the name of the brand was, but it actually created an idea for a brand extension. Mm. came out of consumer. So it's good and bad things, but you have to kind of take the handcuffs off and say, you know what? The consumer is part of making this brand now. So handcuffs or safety net, whatever metaphor we want to use, and bringing it back to uh, grit to grade in the 10 minutes or so we have left, is this requires a leap of faith. This requires kind of akin to what you guys did in 1997 and coming there and saying, I have to, and, I'm, and I hate that this sounds cliche in, in, in management guru theory circles, but I have to disrupt myself in order to have any hope of enjoying what's on the other side of what's going on here. That's happening both in the agency situation right now and it's happening uh, with big uh, corporate spenders, uh, you know, the, the Procter & Gamble's of the world, the PepsiCo's of the world, that they're saying, um, gosh, I really have to take some risks akin to your Clairol yeah. Herbal Essences leap of faith. What I tell clients is if you're standing still, you're going under. You have to keep that thought in your mind. But there are legacy, structural legacy things. If a person's like five years to retirement, a lot of these legacy people are still there. They've been holding on to their jobs for dear life. And the, the millennials who are not wedded to these old things have not kind of cycled through the process yet. Well, look, 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 the most successful people are the people who always are able to reinvent themselves. Um, you know, there's this, I think, you know, what we're trying to say in GRID is uh, we have no expiration dates, right? Instead of thinking about, as you're saying, oh, I'm, you know, five years from retirement. I don't want to, you know, rock the boat because then I'm going to go sit on a beach someplace. That's crazy, right? The fastest growing group of people in the United States are 100-year-olds. So we're going to have many chapters in our life. You're going to have many opportunities to reinvent yourself. You should, you know, uh, Sherry Lansing, famous Hollywood executive, said don't retire, rewire. And, you know, I think one of the things that we're trying to say in GRIT is, you know, you can use your guts, your resilience, your initiative, tenacity at any age to reinvent yourself. Um, and that when you can let go of that fear, there are many, many ways you can figure out how to do those things that are scaring you, right? Take that leap. I'm on my, you know, next career now. I was in advertising for many, many years. I lived in New York. I worked in the for-profit industry. And two years ago, I said, well, okay, I'm leaving New York. I'm going to Washington. I'm leaving the for-profit world to go work for a new nonprofit. I'm leaving advertising to go work, you know, as a client. And I was scared out of my mind. But there was something good in, in that you knew that your industry was being vastly disrupted. You'd you ostensibly are not poor. Um, you you know you had some some safety net to kind of do something like this. Uh, it's very different if you're telling a person who has maybe five years to retirement has seen their retirement savings take a hit, uh, was not feeling gainfully employed for a while. This is where I kind of want to bring it back to m mom and pop level. It's like it's easy for you to say you know executive people, but it's much harder in practice when you're worried about how you're going to put your kids to school or well, insurance. Well, exactly or... for that reason is the reason that you have to get out there in the tightrope and do something. Because if you are going to be standing still, the, the way the world is moving right now, I mean, look at it. Kids who are entering in their freshman year of college, 60% of the jobs that will be available to them when they graduate have not even been invented yet. This gives you the kind of exponential, just as a, as a mind frame, the exponential growth and the speed at which is, things are happening, that it's almost scarier 
to not do anything. So even if you're five years away from retirement, you have to be thinking at sort of a nano speed, how do I move as quickly as the world is spinning right now? And that's why you have to be more inventive, more daring, and in many ways, take more risks. And I think what we're seeing, especially with gen, you know, people who are over 50, we're finding that, you know what, the big apps, the big inventions, everybody thinks it's, it's happening with the, the under 30s. Most of those are happening with people in their 40s and their 50s. We're just not hearing about it. I mean, everybody talks about Picasso's great brilliance. He did his best paintings in his 80s, for goodness sake. People don't realize that the, the, the modern neuroscience has absolutely proven that you don't lose brain cells. You gain brain cells as you get older at, is if you continue to think and work. Happiness is not not having any problems and sitting on a beach. Happiness is how you feel when you solve a problem. And this is why so many people who go into retirement, they feel great for a few months and then they get depressed. Mm. And they have so much to contribute. And in a world where we need more people than ever to be coming with innovative ideas and moving things forward, people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and yes, in their hundreds, still have so much to contribute. And that's what the book is about. And that's what we're talking about. At any age, you can develop these skills, and you can do things far greater than you ever imagined. I want you uh, to communicate, Robin, to those people out there listening who are in this morass, who feel they are stuck, who want to reinvent, who look at your example, who look at uh, amazingly at companies like you know Apple that was 60 days away from bankruptcy in 1997, and it's now the the most valuable company in the world, or people that pulled it off but wonder, you know, was that done by dint of of connections or um, were, were there other X factors that I just don't have? What would you tell them out there from your heart to theirs? You know, there's a million reasons why I shouldn't be where I am, right? I didn't grow up in a wealthy family. I didn't have connections. Um, I went to a nice school. I didn't go to an Ivy League school. Um, you know, I, I think all of us have something in our background that could have held us back. But what we need to do is sort of focus on what do you got? You know that Mary J. Blige song, you know, use what you got? I think we sometimes discount our own abilities and we don't realize that what might look like a disability or disadvantage to the outside world is actually your advantage. Uh, you know, I think... But these are things we can appreciate in hindsight when we've gotten through the hurdle. When, when it's actually happening, it feels like the world is ending. You can read books and about... And it's cliche in business journalism. The CEO says why I cherish my failures. I do cherish my failures. I don't think you learn anything they by success. They stink while it's they, happening. Yeah, it, it sucks stings. while it's happening. There's no question about that. But... You don't learn anything from your successes. You're busy celebrating. Most people don't learn from that. What you learn from is your failures. And I think, you know, it's a big issue for the millennial generation because, unfortunately, what they've been taught is if you have a setback at work, um, if you uh, don't feel like you're getting promoted, if your boss is a pain in the neck, you should leave. And this idea of I have to change jobs every two years, that is a tremendous waste of time. It's it's bad for organizations and businesses. It's bad for individuals because you never gain the experience that you really need. You're always starting over. So, you know, I think, you know, we talk in the book a little bit about weight training, W-A-I-T, that 
we have to learn to, I think, have a little patience and failure is a part of life. Um, what can you extract from it versus running away from it? I love the the example when we talk about him in the book of James Dyson of the, the guy who invented the uh, bagless vacuum cleaner. And, you know, you see this brilliant man with this brilliant invention. But what you don't realize is it took him 15 years and he had 5,126 failed prototypes that totally sucked or perhaps I should say didn't suck. And that was the problem. Well, Linda, when should a person stop, though? When when does it become just well, uh, this has insanity? To do, okay, this has to do with having either a growth mindset or a fixed mindset. If you have a fixed mindset, then James Dyson would have stopped after the first failure and said, "This is too friggin' hard. I'm going to stop." You know, and I'll and I'll become like a door to door some other salesman. A growth mindset says. Okay, I learned that this direction doesn't work. Let me try something else. And what we need to have much more of is a growth mindset that tells us when you fail, it's not a setback. It's a way that's pushing you forward into a direction that may be better than you ever thought possible. And James Dyson is proof of that. He said, I'm glad I had all those failures because what I initially planned to do was far worse than what I ended up with. You know, Steve Jobs once said, nothing in your life makes sense until you look back on it, and then you see a beautiful necklace that's connected all the stones. And I just, I love that analogy, and I love that metaphor, because when I look back on my life, I go, wait, I was in theater, and then I was in advertising, and then I did this, and I did that. And I go, yeah, it all makes sense now. Now I know why I did what I was supposed to do, and there's more to come. Linda Kaplan-Thaler, Robin Koval, mad women, advertising gurus, Authors of the national bestseller, Grit to Great. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Full disclosure, we're on NPR One. Hit the interesting light bulb. And if you love us, uh, wire $10,000 to my Swiss bank account. We're also on iTunes, WRIR, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Our engineer is John Valentine. I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next week. Mom.